Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Nasheen Pasha Zaidi. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Houston downtown, Houston Community College, and she also serves on the board of trustees for the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Dr. Nasheen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your upbringing. Did you uh, grow up in the United States? And um, if so, did where did your parents originally come from? My parents actually immigrated. We all immigrated from Pakistan. I was about the age of five at the time. So I did all of my schooling in New York. Um, and up until the my undergraduate work, I was I was in New York. So when someone asks me where I'm from, that's generally what I say is I'm from New York. But um, originally, I was born in Pakistan. And so I, I, I come from a bilingual or and, and bicultural um, background in terms of my uh, my own identity development. Right, right. And um, tell me more about your journey of faith. So your your parents identified as Muslim when they came here. And I know for, for many individuals, even including myself, you know, parents that come from overseas, there's obviously a lot of struggle for transition, assimilation, adjustment, and sometimes certain cultural or religious facets are overemphasized. And um, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And I'm wondering if you had any similar experiences that you could perhaps share. Right. Well, um, yeah, we we grew up as Pakistani Americans. And so that was my first level of understanding of who I, I was in that hyphenated identity idea and from a cultural perspective. Islam, because Pakistan is a Muslim country, uh, Islam was just a part of the upbringing. So it wasn't like it was uh, specifically religious per se, or that some things were taught to us as being um, as being religious, versus being Pakistani. It was just all um, part of being who we were. And obviously the home culture was different than the culture outside the home. And I think this is representative of most immigrant families, that the home culture um, represents a lot of times whatever the family is bringing from overseas. And then the culture that we work with outside within schools and the institutions, work, um, relationships, friends, peers, those are much more representative of this plethora of uh, cultures and religions that, that we have in our communities here in the, in the United States. And so, yeah, my family came from uh, the Pakistani um, perspective, but they, uh, they also represented, I guess, the middle class Pakistani perspective. And so religion was just a part of who we who we were growing up uh, we learned to pray we learned to read the Quran in um, in Arabic uh, and later as I was growing older um, I became much more interested in that aspect of my identity and so I started reading up on that uh, more reading up on how women are um, perceived within Islam and the rights that we have in particular um, and uh, just also in terms of who we are within the um, the fabric of American society. So sister, I would like to get right into um, one of your published pieces, which is very interesting. And I've had a chance to uh, review sections of it. I I definitely um, absorbed your intro, which I thought was a really nice summary of the history and uh, almost perceptive evolution of what hijab means, um, both within and without the community. And I think that this book, Mirror on the Veil, 
um, has a very interesting collection of, of different perspectives. And I think one thing that it really demonstrates is the complexity of this matter. Um, and I'd love to hear more about your inspiration for putting this together. What kind of led you to say, you know what, I want to get all these opinions together because there's just a lot of rhetoric or religious political positions on what this all means. And it was so nice to just get all these different human perspectives and female perspectives on what is hijab and what does it mean and what does it represent. Um, I'd love to hear more about how you got inspired to put this together. Well, you know, it was uh, hijab is, was always interesting to me because when I started looking into the idea of uh, a Muslim identity, it was around the time when most people uh, start uh, understanding who they are and where they fit in the world and in their in their social communities. And so that was around my late adolescence, early um, early twenties, and around that time was when there were a lot of women in the United States who were starting to wear the headscarf. And so it was becoming a much more visible sign of Muslimness. And so as a result of that, and as a result of my own development, that was always something that was interesting to me. And so um, I was interested in the in the variety of the way people see uh, the headscarf. And that's kind of how it started um, in terms of trying to understand what is hijab and what does it mean for Muslim women. And so I did my dissertation on this topic. And for this, for that one, because we, you know, when, when you do um, dissertations, it's good to try to limit the variability in your responses. It's just part of research. And so I focused on um, South Asian Muslim women. So it was a very uh, specific uh, ethnic background I was looking at. And I was looking at um, the South Asian Muslim women's perspectives on hijab from women that were in the United States versus women that were in the uh, United Arab Emirates, because that's where I was locally at the time when I started uh, putting the study together. And in both of those cases, um, South Asian Muslims were uh, were immigrants or migrants to that area. So they weren't local to the land. And so I was interested in finding out what were their perceptions of hijab uh, and uh, in terms of the, how, how they had, uh, attractive they felt that women were when they wore the headscarf as compared to without the headscarf, how employable uh, women are um, in one of those two conditions. And so I got a lot of really interesting feedback from that. But again, it was limited because it was a quantitative dissertation. So I got a lot of good statistics about trends and things and uh, ideas of discrimination both outside and within our community. But then beyond that, um, I really wanted to know what were the stories, because I think statistics are great. But as we know from from just understanding media and understanding research, statistics don't necessarily make any change in people's perceptions. It's the stories that really um, are of interest to, to us as human beings. And so that was something that I wanted to do as a follow-up to my dissertation. And when I started this, I was again just going to focus on Muslim women because I thought this topic is limited to that. And I think that is a misconception that we have. How so? Well, the misconception I think is related to the fact that we think veiling is a Muslim thing. We think that um, the idea of covering your hair 
is just something that is within Islamic communities. And when you look at the history of veiling and head cover, it's actually not Islamic. It was in the community where Islam uh, came into being in the Arabian Peninsula, but it was something that the uh, the Arab women uh, and the and in lots of other areas as well also practiced, and it had not necessarily anything to do with their religious background. It had to do with their status in their in the society that they lived in. In fact, it was the upper class women that covered their hair. And we have um, we have evidence of certain laws in Assyria, for example, which I has always blown my mind when I first read about this, was that uh, the Assyrian law codes um, basically said that women who didn't cover their hair were considered lower class and they they were um, you know relegated to the idea of being um, of the class of uh, peasants and harlots and uh, slaves. And they were not allowed to veil because then they were taking on the position of what upper class women had and so um, they were they, there were punishments for that now whether that was actually taken place or not within the society um, I don't know but within the law that was codified that women who uh, covered their hair who were who did not belong to upper classes could be punished for it and and so I think that really made me realize that veiling is not limited at all to Muslim women or contemporary Islam or even um, the ideas that are associated with oppression in different parts of the world, which is how we tend to equate uh, the headscarf and veiling in general. Right. No, that's a very interesting point. And I know in your in your book, you do mention some um, uh, some context around the Ottoman Empire where that was uh, recorded a recorded case, right? That upper class women were veiled, and sometimes women that weren't were associated with these lower segments of society, so to speak. And you also bring up a, another very interesting and important point that you know this idea of veiling wasn't a uniquely Muslim phenomena. I mean, we know clearly that in the Judeo-Christian heritage, and um, even in, even today in certain parts of Eastern Europe, you will find women observing the veil. Um, and of course, we have nuns, and we have, um, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish town in Massachusetts, and Orthodox Jewish women covered their hair too. Um, so you had you had this exist even in, in Zoroastrianism, and, and, and even in Hinduism and Buddhism, you find this practice exists in, in different civilizations. Is that um, some of the data that you've come across in your research as well? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in terms of head cover, it is not uh, necessarily even a religious um, aspect. I mean, it, uh, the, the uh, veiling that I was referring to in terms of what was happening in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, that predated Islam by at least, I think, like 1,500 years. And so it, it even predated uh, Judaism. Uh, so it was something that was in the culture and it represented social class, not religion. And so when religion came into it, because people already as, uh, associated modesty and piety with upper class women, those were then um, relegated to the women who followed the 
uh, particular religions. And so, uh, you know, fast forward this throughout the centuries, um, and here we are, and we're still equating the idea of head cover with modesty and piety. And yes, absolutely, nuns in, um, and I was in Italy a few years ago, and, uh, you know, there were, there were nuns, uh, Roman Catholic nuns at the airport, and they were dressed according to the, um, the, their religious uh, tenets of, of, of their faith. And so it's not just a Muslim thing. I think um, it's become a Muslim thing because we are looking at it from the, uh, the perspective of Muslims within the, um, the American society and European society. And that has then become this marker of otherness uh, because um, women who cover their hair are not considered uh, to be normal within the uh, attire that is considered normal within these particular cultures. Right. Now, today, though, you find that it is a very um, potent symbol of within the Muslim community. It tends to be a potent symbol. And I think your book demonstrates this with the different accounts that for some people, it is a religious existential devotional aspects. Um, for others, it's more about identity politics. Um, for instance, I've met hijabis who you know, they wear hijab because it's embedded in the culture or the political identity of where they come from. But then they don't necessarily observe other pillars of Islam, which was interesting. It's like, okay, so you wear the hijab, which many people see that and they're like, oh, you're a pious, devoted Muslim woman. But then I've met women that they don't actually follow many of the other tenets of Islam. Uh, and then on the other hand, you may have women that don't wear hijab and they may be instantly judged as suboptimal in their piety, yet they may have more brilliance in their religious um, character and practice than women that do. And it's interesting because you have people that sometimes say, well, see, you don't need hijab to be more spiritual or religious. Uh, on the other hand, people will say, uh, but yeah, but in the end, we always want to have our inner and our outer reflecting each other. And there's so many different variations and complexities to the matter. I mean, we, of course, have personal psychology, like if you grew up, you know, experiencing a lot of trauma or abuse because of hijab or your hair, uh, this can now create a very difficult relationship to this symbol or practice of hijab. And it's not it's not like I found from from some of the um some of the stories I was reading in your book that it's not that simple, you know, for, for people to just uh, come to these conclusions based on just the outer dress all the time. And, I, and I'd love to hear more about some of the stories in your book that you felt were really profound in sharing um, some of these different perspectives of, of what hijab really means for some of the, our sisters. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's I think you've just hit on the basic um, point behind Mirror on the Veil is that there is so much diversity in this practice and that um, we look at it often as this external uh, positioning of a person based on our own understanding of what the hijab means. And, uh, and then we impart all of these other characteristics to the person who is wearing the headscarf. And in the same way, we impart the same um, kind of judgments 
on women who don't wear the headscarf but consider themselves Muslim. And it was interesting because I was uh, I was talking to someone just the other day, and we were we were doing um, a, a part of the, a, a, a talk on Islamic cultures, and um, and she didn't wear the headscarf. I don't. I also don't wear the headscarf um, currently. And and she was saying, well, I'm not religious. Uh, I'm not religious. I follow um, you know Islam. I do all of these different things, but I'm not religious. And it's just a very interesting notion of you know well what do you consider religious um, right i mean where where does that idea of religion religion fit into your life and for some people uh when you grow up in uh, within a religious environment and there and it's very authoritarian in, in many ways and people tell you you know you should do this and you and you must do that and and you have to follow this this that and the other thing and and so your choices then become limited in terms of what you feel is appropriate then you do feel that you know that that your religion is now becoming claustrophobic for you, and that is one of the stories that that I think was very powerful in Mirror on the Veil was this woman um, uh, who was at the time uh, wearing a headscarf, um, and she isn't currently, which is another thing. Headscarf wearing hijab is a process, not a point in time. But she was conflicted because uh, of the same things that you were mentioning. You know, she felt internally, intrinsically, uh, very religious in terms of her relationship with with God. And we in Islam and as Muslims believe in that one-to-one relationship with God. We don't have these intercessors or people or, um, or institutions that are supposed to be separating us from our creator. And so she felt a very strong relationship the more she read about Islam. And yet when she wore the headscarf, she didn't do it for herself. She did it because her in-laws um, expected it of her, and um, and the society that she was living in expected it of a pious Muslim woman, and as a result, that was something that she was uh, torn about. And so now she no longer wears it, or at least for the time being, she's not wearing it. Um, we had another uh, story in there that was. Um, by one person who actually wrote two different essays showing the process of hijab. And in the first one, when she first, because this was a very long process, getting these uh, these essays together was the the course of about five years, I think. Um, And this particular uh, woman, she started off without, well, she wore hijab when she was younger and then she took it off. And then at the time she wrote her first essay, she wasn't wearing hijab. And she talked about how not wearing hijab in the Muslim community um, was something that uh, made her feel like a second class citizen. And then later on, as the process went on, um, she decided to go back and start wearing the headscarf again. And now her identity is more related to the outward expression of Islam. And But, but her understanding of uh, women who don't wear the headscarf um, reflects her experiences of the time when she didn't wear the headscarf, especially during Muslim community events. And um, that's what my research says as well. Yeah, I think you bring up a very important point here, which is one that I often try to deconstruct with individuals and families that I work with. And it's it's very common to find that I think for many Muslims, there's this idea of, you know, almost worshiping more so the communitarian constructs of the religion uh, 
or the external expectations of the religion versus making it a sincere pathway to the divine. And sometimes we get too caught up in what we represent and what people expect and what people will say and think versus, is this really about me and my Lord? And I think this is one of the struggles that a lot of people have because so many times I've I've met people, they say, well, I married this person because they said they were religious. And I, it's like, how did you know? It's like, oh, they, they, you know, they had all the external checklist. But then when it comes to real spirituality, when it comes to, and by spirituality, I mean really cultivating the internal character traits and purification of the heart and these types of things. Because there's a lot of people that do external acts of religion and devotion, but that doesn't mean that there's any internal reality. So it's very interesting to, to hear you mention this point and also, so it's exemplified in some of these stories that, you know, even a woman from from the perspective of hijab can have her own journey with it. And I certainly know sisters that have had, you know, ins and outs with the veil, so to speak. And um, one story I remember from from the book, it talks about how the sister almost described like the hijab had its own force and sometimes it would call to her and it was always her friend. And, you know, it was in and out of her life, almost like... Um, I want to say like a, how would I describe it? Um, yeah, like I guess almost like a, a companion in her in, in her existence, like an existential companion, so to speak. Um, and certain times in her life, she felt like it was the shield and the warmth that she needed. And at other times it wasn't, but that did not make her disdain it or be against it, so to speak. And I feel like a lot of people, when it comes to especially matters of religion, not just hijab, but it could be anything, um, it becomes almost like very black and white. And I think even from a male perspective, uh, the only way I can kind of relate to this idea of hijab is like having a beard you know like because because there are muslim men out there that are like you have to have a long beard and if you don't then it's like the same thing it's like your your piety is suboptimal or i've heard guys say you know what does he know he doesn't even have a beard or he doesn't wear a kufi or something and it's like subhanallah we sometimes get so fixated on some of these practices all by they are, they are important for some people and i'm not arguing against um hijab or a beard or anything like that i'm just talking about how we sometimes get so obsessed with the external branding of religious constructs or or communitarian constructs that we forget the actual substance of the matter would you say that's something you've also noticed and observed from your research and work yeah i mean absolutely because it's more difficult to find out what someone's internal uh, perspectives are in order to do that you have to get to know them you have to talk to them right so that takes time whereas as human beings we make our first impressions just based on the physical uh, appearance of a person and that's I think the research says somewhere around a few milliseconds we make that we make that judgment and and from that judgment we build our whole uh, persona of this person and then the remainder of the uh, relationship with that person is either going to uh, subtract 
from our initial judgment or going to add to our initial judgment. And so depending on the relationships that you have with people, the more diverse relationships that you have, the less likely you are to create these very one-dimensional understandings of the person that you meet. And certainly the experiences that you have with religion make uh, make a big influence on your understanding of the person and their own external appearances as well. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot more involved to it, but it's easier, I guess, in some ways to form a community if you can just say this person looks like me and so this person must be like me. And, and, and you know, we need to have those kinds of ways to get into a community as well. I mean, at least from a human perspective, we have these checklists of things that, that we look for, at least initially when we are uh, developing relationships with, with someone. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that. Absolutely. Yeah, because sometimes what ends up happening is when we as a community or some communities overemphasize the external checklist or the symbolism of you're in my group, you're in my tribe, right? Um, This groupthink type mentality. uh, What ends up happening is when you start to see contradictions in the person's character or behaviors from the religious tenets, then you find now people throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're like, oh, well, this is all because of that. You know, this whole Islam thing or all hijabis or bearded men. I now put them into this category of being hypocrites, for instance. And one thing I enjoyed about your book is it does try to, or at least one of the messages I take away, people will have their, their own opinion, is like, look, it's it's nothing is really um, absolute in that sense. You know, there are variations of meanings and, inter- and intentions and experiences that are going to shape the contours of one's religiosity, spirituality, and understanding. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is who we say he is, I think there's room for that, you know? And some people don't want to make room for that, which I find... Um, concerning to say the least well i think part of it is um and perhaps this is more related to uh, the fact that muslims are a minority in western industrialized countries like the united states and so having a um having a group identity that separates you from from others can have a very positive uh positive kind of representation of yourself and helps you grow into this cohesive uh, person because now you have other people who you feel like you belong to. And this is, I think, one of the reasons that um, that in Muslims in the uh, Western countries are now embracing these outward religious um, symbols like hijab, like um, like the, the beard for men, uh, because it does provide this sense of cohesion. And yeah, you do get um, you do get more attention and a lot of times you get a lot of negative attention from from people who are not within the Muslim community. But within the Muslim communities, you are higher up in terms of your level of uh, of piety. And so people look up to people like that. Now, whether you um, you follow the you know, the rest of what is the essentials of Islam, to be honest with you, the, the, the pillars of Islam, that becomes secondary a lot of times because you don't necessarily know everyone in your Muslim community. But you do have an identity which is then cohesive within a, a particular set of people. And so you have, um, you know, people who've got your back. 
kind of thing, you know. And a lot, right now we have a lot of Islamophobia in in Western countries, and having this outward religious, um, you know, symbols makes it uh, makes you feel like you have a group that you belong to, and and I think that is also a, a, one of the things that came out in in the in the book and in some of the stories that having this uh, sense of belonging to the Muslim community um, is very important for people who are looking for themselves and who don't see themselves in mainstream media and when we do see ourselves in mainstream media we have you know certain negative connotations that are constantly and consistently put together with with that term So, Dr. Nasheen, on this topic of, you know, political ideologies and perspectives, of course, there's this idea of feminism, um, which is a very strong force these days. And, and it's clearly something that is important uh, historically and, and present. And for Muslim women are also involved in, in this idea and how it manifests through their faith or against their faith. There's a lot of different versions. And I think that going back to the book, Mirror on the Veil, um, almost like there's two extremes of hijab represents oppression from a feminist lens and the patriarchy and how women are kept, you know, cloaked and down, so to speak. And for others, it actually represents liberation. And I am a woman, first and foremost, that should be um, engaged with uh, based on her intellect, on her spirituality, on her character, on who she is, and not the first the first thing should not be about what kind of body I have or any type of sexual objectification, which as we know is a very strong force in our society as well, this idea of sexual objectification um, and i'm I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you know even maybe from your work amongst Muslim feminists, um, have you experienced something similar where you have Muslim women who are like, hijab is totally a patriarchal, you know, um, oppressive uh, uh, practice, and also Muslim women who are like, no, I see it completely the other way. Uh, and I'd love to hear your, your opinion and insights about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a great, um, great question. Because in the book in particular, those two aspects are definitely seen to some extent. Um, I, I was because I was looking for women who were um, talking from a very reflective and, uh, you know, an experiential perspective, the ideas are not very, um, you know, very one-dimensional. So we don't have this pro-hijab versus anti-hijab uh, feminism uh, going on. But certainly hijab, um, uh, the headscarf, is seen as uh, as something that is against what we would consider the traditional Western feminism, because Western feminism traditionally is about um, throwing off your, you know, all of your your garments in order to be able to express yourself as as holy as possible and not being objectified for your uh, for your sexuality. And in the same way, interestingly, uh, Muslim feminists are about, uh, you know. Uh, engaging with your clothing and 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 instead of throwing it off rather uh, you know putting it on and, and using it as a uh, as a way of uh, countering the idea of sexuality and sexual objectification and so I think it's interesting because both of these um, ideas are inherent in both positions that uh, both uh, feminists who believe that um, 
that the uh, that the veil is oppressive uh, come from this idea of sexual objectification and overcoming that. And the idea that the veil is liberating also comes from this point that of, of you know, overcoming sexual objectification. Although the ways in which uh, those two aspects are approached are obviously very, very different. And a lot of times it, it goes back to the history of the person and the community that one represents that one uh, a person has learned. Feminism is now much more intersectional. We are looking at feminism not just from the perspective of the white Western woman, uh, but from the perspective of the immigrant experience, from racially diverse uh, experiences, from religiously diverse experiences. And this is why I think um, veiling and the hijab is uh, is such a controversial uh, piece of cloth because it is being pulled essentially from you know on both sides uh, or pulled on one side and pushed on the other side and um, it's just an interesting uh, it's an interesting piece of cloth from that perspective and um, and and certainly in in the book you you'll see both aspects of it um, and and that represents what a person a woman it was taught growing up um, and what a person is now understanding um, her own uh, feminism to to mean. Right. And of course, there are the positions that are in between those two, right? Um, it's not just always about liberation or total oppression. There's also uh, more synthesis of those ideas as well. Like there are, for example, Muslim women who may not wear a scarf on their head, yet still observe this idea of modest dress or not wanting to sexual objectify oneself and still feel that this is aligned with their values or ethics, whether it be, you know, liberal or conservative, so to speak. Well, I think that's the most important part of the term hijab. And, I, and even when I use it, I'm using it in the sense of the head scarf because that's what people these days are using it as from a colloquial perspective from you know from our daily talking about this but really hijab is behavior it's about this idea of modesty and maintaining modesty and modesty of conduct modesty of dress modesty of you know of interactions between the genders and that's really what hijab is and for for some women, I mean, 50%, somewhere around 50% of women um, in the United States, at least according to the Pew research was done a, a few uh, years ago, a little bit less than 50% uh, wear the headscarf, a little bit over 50% do not. But of course, that changes because it's a process and some women, women uh, will uh, put on a headscarf and other women will take off a headscarf and some women will wear the headscarf during prayer, which uh, is very important for me. I can't even imagine praying, um, you know, doing salah without my headscarf because it provides me with that um, cocoon that allows me to really go into myself and understand this conversation that I'm having with my creator during this prayer. And so uh, you have a variety of different expressions and variety of different levels of wearing the headscarf. And most Muslim women believe in the concept of modesty, which is what the hijab ultimately represents. So certainly the book is not about these dichotomous positions. In fact, it's you might find one that set one or two on one side and maybe one or two on the other side, but most of the experiences are personal experiences that run the gamut of all sorts of different uh, ways of interpreting and wearing a headscarf or not. 
Right. And of course, you know, as you mentioned your book, and I want to just highlight and add, modesty is for men as well, right? Muslim men are also commanded to be modest and lower their gaze and have respect towards interacting with females. Um, You know, modest dress of Muslim men has been traditionally found in many Muslim societies until today. Right. I mean, when you look at certain aspects of um, Arabian culture or Indian culture or a Persian culture, you're going to see that Muslim men are also many of them observe what we would, what we would call more modest dress. Um, and you know, I'll tell you a little secret, Dr. Nasheen. I actually wear hijab when I pray as well. Um, and this is actually something that I learned was part of the, the tradition of many of uh, Muslim men of the past, including the companions and, and prophets, where they would also have that similar type of cloak that they would cover their bodies with to pray. Um, and, and I certainly feel exactly what you're talking about this just more of a um container if you will um when when i'm praying and i notice that times when i i don't pray like i'm just wearing my sweater and and pants it doesn't i feel almost like i want to use the word naked i almost yeah like i feel that way and so this was something that i adopted in the last um five years myself and i have noticed a significant difference in in my connectivity with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the prayer so just kind of a side note for even the men out there that you know this isn't just about the female expression but i think that it almost represents a higher um uh level of of modesty for for all of us and again this is this is clearly found in in other religious traditions as well you know when when you have priests and and monks and rabbis their dress is very modest i mean i don't remember the last time i saw a buddhist monk wearing skinny jeans and uh you know uh a tight t-shirt that has you know a bottle of beer on it you know i mean it's like you still find this uh, and it's very interesting because it's almost like connected to uh human psychology you know if you want to look at this idea of um you know that the ha- there are certain virtues you know that have been suggested in anthropology and, and sociology and cross-cultural studies that there are certain virtues like modesty and wisdom and courage and compassion that are cross-cultural absolutely absolutely and so it's interesting that that and i'm glad you brought this up because in the quran it the, the idea of modesty is first enjoined upon men you know uh, in in terms of the verses it is addressed to men first and then to women in that particular verse. And uh, it's interesting because we hardly ever speak about it. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate you telling me about that. Where were you five years ago when I needed a man's <laughs> perspective? <laughs> and the reference that I was referring to in the Quran um, is in chapter 24, uh, verses 30 to 31. And um, it starts with, say to the believing men, that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty that will make for greater purity for them. And Allah is well acquainted with all that they do. And then it goes on. Verse 31 is for the women and and say to the believing women that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty and that they should not display their beauty and ornaments except what must ordinarily appear thereof and that they should draw their veils over their bosoms and not display their beauty except to their husbands. Right. So it's interesting because we often, you know, um, don't think about that first part, right? That it's first talking to the men to be modest and to lower their gaze first and foremost. Uh, and then the women are addressed. What, why do you, what do you think could be one wisdom jewel or gem that we can take away for, from that specific sequence? Well, I think um, a lot of times women 
are the carriers of religion. We are the mothers. We are the ones that are um, that are passing down these gems of of our religion and our culture from one generation to the next. And I think that's why a lot of times the focus on modesty and piety is so often on women. But I think it's very, very important to understand that a lot of um, the world is run uh, currently by by males. And this is not just in Muslim countries, but around the world. And and as a result, I think it's important for, for us as a society to understand that it's not just a responsibility of women to, um, to guard our modesty, but that it's a responsibility of both men and women to be respectful of each other. And, uh, and to enjoin good works upon each other and to um, and as a result, uh, hopefully to create uh, a positive uh, environment for for ourselves currently in the situations that we live in, but also for future generations. Lovely, lovely. Dr. Nasheen, if you had a one piece of advice to give to our Muslim men out there and one to our Muslim sisters out there, what would it be? I guess be open, be respectful of each other, understand that we all have our own um, place in the world and that it is because of Allah that we have the experiences that we have and that we that we bring our experiences to our conversations and to our um, to our interactions and to be respectful of each other, to listen to each other and to um, to be understanding and to be gentle. I think that's what uh, the Prophet would have uh, would have wanted from all of us is to be gentle. Beautiful advice, beautiful advice. You can't go wrong with gentleness and compassion. Yeah. Excellent, Dr. Nasheen. <laughs> well, Dr. Nasheen, it's been such a lovely pleasure to speak with you today. And um, I think your book is a very uh, profound and, and a lovely collection of, of different real stories that I would encourage our brothers and sisters out there um, to, to check out and, and read. Uh, we will have the link up on Amazon. And uh, Dr. Nasheen, thanks again for, for your time today. Thank you so much, Kareem, for having me. I appreciate it. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit NurHuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit CoffeeWithKareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem. That's Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem.